Welcome to the Being Human UT podcast, where Dr. Randy Jasmine and Dr. Jim Hindigas will discuss issues relative to the humanities and technology at Utah Tech University. And now your hosts for Being Human UT podcast, Dr. Randy Jasmine and Dr. Jim Hindigas. Last week on the campus of Utah Tech University, the 2023 Global Polytechnic Summit took place. And in this summit, or at this summit, several speakers um, agreed to talk to us about what they had going on in the field of linking together humanities and technology. This conference was eye-opening in a lot of ways, and it was very interesting to hear what different people had to say. I thought it was really exciting to see how the humanities are really um, processing a lot of technological technological change in the future, and especially, I mean, as our, our favorite topic of AI uh, writing um, comes up quite a bit. But it uh, it was it was exciting to see what people are doing right now. Yeah, it was. It was it was a very positive and thought provoking conference. And we would like to share with you several presenters who took the time to speak with us in our mobile podcast setup that we had at the conference. For this portion of the podcast, we have a couple of segments that we recorded during the 2023 Global Polytechnic Summit at Utah Tech. This was the first summit of its kind, the first conference of its kind here at Utah Tech. And some of the top scholars and entrepreneurs and students from around the country and even around the world have come to present on topics of polytechnic um, concern. Um, Much of the theme of this conference and certainly the theme of this segment is going to be the integration of a polytechnic vision and technology with the humanities, with disciplines that traditionally are thought of as being outside of the STEM or even the STEAM field, humanities. I have with me today Dr. John Wolfe and one of his students, William Holsworth, who's done a project in Dr. Wolfe's class in which he does some interdisciplinary research in which they work together to integrate these very kinds of things that we've been talking about. So John, why don't you introduce the project and then we'll hear from William um, about how that project actually went. Good, sounds good. Well, uh, thank you for having me. First off, thank you for letting us be here today and have a conversation. Uh, This is really exciting work. As I've said on several occasions, William produced one of the most impressive projects that I've encountered in my 16 years of teaching. And anytime we can talk about the work that he or my other students are doing, I'm more than happy to do so. Um, William is, from from the moment I encountered him, when he came into my office uh, to talk about possibly attending UT, he has been an individual who has been really interested in the intersections between multiple disciplines. Uh, He's interested in philosophy. He's interested in, uh, is your degree in psychology? Psychology. Psychology. And so... Throughout a a lot of his research for me in prior classes and philosophy classes, actually engaged that intersection between philosophy and ethics and psychology. Uh, We started working on an independent study project that uh, was beginning as a metaphysics and epistemology readings, and I'll let him more talk more about that in a bit. But 
I, I sort of, the goal in, for me was to help William guide, to guide him through a process of expanding his thought naturally. And maybe he can speak to how he began to develop his thought, how it started and how it progressed. But what this project in thinking about what is knowledge blossomed into this really fascinating exploration about artificial intelligence, um, about human advancement, and about how we as humans can think about the process of playing games and what it means to play a game in relation to some of the, the developments for AI. So uh, I'll let William speak more about his project and how it transitioned between uh, thoughts and grew. Uh, and I'll jump in with some comments as, as he progresses, but I, I, I think it's best to hear from, from the wonderful student's mouth himself. So, so William. Okay. So, um, well, the original goal in doing the independent study was to expand, to expand my, uh, philosophical understanding of, uh, disciplines I had not delved into yet. Cause some of the classes like on epistemology and metaphysics specifically, uh, were not being offered for that year. Um, so I came to him and, um, uh, we got together, talked about doing such a project and after getting it all set up, um, I actually honestly didn't know where I would begin. Um, just having the knowledge that I, I just wanted to get into, uh, these fields, right? Um, so he, Dr. Wolf, uh, suggested some... Uh, philosophical readings like Plato's Fido and Meno, um, some other ones, um, I'm trying to remember, Descartes' um, Discourse on um, Method, mm -hmm. yeah, and um, Assumed Inquiry to Human Understanding. Now, to, to just jump in here a little bit, if you're not familiar with those texts, notably Descartes and Hume, they are really sort of early enlightenment thinkers that are really wrestling with the idea of what constitutes knowledge and how our sensory data and lived experience may not necessarily equate to what we call knowledge. And so Descartes is famous uh, for sort of almost a brain in a jar thought, the cogito, the I think therefore I am. Right. And so he, he really has this thought experiment about trying to drive down to the idea of what knowledge of the self actually is. And this is sort of brought to its logical conclusion through the work of David Hume, who leads to a far more skeptical, and I say that in a healthy way, skeptical conclusion uh, about how we are individuals and creatures of really what amounts to habit. So the reason why, you know, looking at all the equipment and microphones, the reason why you went through the setup that you did in getting us ready to talk was not because you knew for certain that the technology was going to be functioning properly, but rather because your previous experience had given you an indication that the setup practice would be probable to be successful. And so the sort of space about ambiguity of knowledge was, for me, I think, a, hopefully for William, a moment of where, where it began to click and sort of driving him toward other parts of the, of the of the project. So where did you go from there, William? So in, in that discussion that we were having about Descartes' assume, um the matrix actually came up because that's uh, Descartes' um, brain in the jar of that um, theory come to life in the storytelling. Um, and talking about Hume and how he was so skeptical about these experiences that we have or what knowledge really is, uh, just kind of kick-started 
this discussion on artificial intelligence, what would these philosophers think about uh, transferring their theories onto an artificial mind? Can that even be applied? And it just kicked off from there. Um, so from there, we had many discussions theorizing about these subjects. But after that, I actually um, interviewed Curtis Larson of the Computer Science Division. A, a, a uh, guest on this podcast. Yes. So we had a like an hour-long, fascinating uh, discussion on what, what entails artificial intelligence, what, it constitu- what constitutes artificial intelligence and how it might work and kind of just throwing around some um, perspectives on the differences between the human mind and the artificial mind. One of the key findings that I found from that uh, interview, the one that came up, was um, no matter how advanced we might make artificial intelligence, even future possibilities, um, the key difference is that we as humans are able to change our prime directive, is what it's called. So artificial intelligence needs to be guided by this uh, programming, this force, as you call it, as you, you could say, um, to motivate, motivate it to do its uh, task. But when you compare that to us, we are very unpredictable, I guess, in spirit, um, where we have the ability to just on a dime, change our reasoning or um, motivation to do something. Maybe even because you just want to. Um, so that is where my paper really developed. And we, Wolf and I talked about that some more, that key finding, and he rejected reading Suits Grasshopper, which is um, a book about how the process of game playing is actually the ultimate purpose and meaning of life. And so we should we should jump in a little bit to say that game playing doesn't mean I'm going to pull out my Nintendo 64 right. for us old folks and start playing some Mario. But rather it's he he he's responding to, to Wittgenstein and some early 19th century or excuse me, early 20th century game theory, where he argues that the human there's something within the way that we solve problems that is inherently tied to limiting rules or imposing limitations and trying to achieve a goal within limitations. And so, and, and that's what he calls that the process of playing a game. And so an example would be like work, right? So if you, if we think about what is the purpose or what is the goal for work? Well, we want to take care of our family. We want to, we want to be able to retire at an appropriate age. We want to have lots of money. I, you know, we have all these goals associated with work. And the, the, the idea is that if we wanted to hypothetically achieve those goals, there's a lot of sort of ways that we would often deem to be unethical or beyond the scope of normal perception that we could achieve those goals. So if, I, if, if money was the only issue, um, I walk into, you know, there's lots of violent imagery I'm going to say because we know we're going to do that, but you, you can acquire money in ways that... Most functioning members of society say we're not going to do, right? And so the idea of putting and imposing, in many ways, artificial limitations on our actions for the sake of trying to achieve goals is what Suits calls the process of playing the game. But there is something within the nature of the human experience 
that says, I want to, I, th there's a challenge or benefit, or uh, Hannah Arendt uh, you know, describes this difference between work and labor. There's an enjoyment in the act because of the limitation that I placed on myself in conducting the act, right? So from there, um, that's where I brought in the interdisciplinary aspect of my psychology um, education. So what he was trying to describe what is called the intrinsic motivation, and that's a phenomenon where we just simply do the activity for the activity's sake. Um, so I kind of go into depth on that and bring in extra, uh, extra motivation and um, the over-justification effect, which is um, the uh, effect that happens on you when... So let's, let's consider art as an example. You, you, you create art for the sake of art. And by having the uh, extrinsic motivation of money or um, a goal like uh, to, to achieve for it, an end result, that can actually undermine your intrinsic motivation. And there's a psychological study called the Feltiff Marker Study. It's, um, I won't get too into, into it, but essentially they divided children up into three groups. Um, one, one group knew of the reward for drawing with their markers. The second group knew of the reward, um, but they were told they weren't going to get it. Um, and the third one had no idea there was a reward at all. And what they found was that those who knew of the rewards, even though the ones that were told the, what they weren't going to get it, um, they found that they had a decreased time in drawing. Those who did not know of the reward um, drew with their new markers much longer. And that was kind of some evidence that without that external force of a, a promising result of some kind, um, without that, we are much happier in doing our activity. Um, so I bring in the concept of work and labor with that too. Uh, that's the philosophy of work, but essentially... Um, the tying, the unifying factors that I brought together were, um, how labor is a never ending cycle and work is past that. This is based on Eric's, uh, work, the human condition. Um, work is beyond that to the extent of we're creating something to help, uh, ease the labor part of it. But what Eric calls action is moving past that, past both work and labor and uh, being able to do an activity for the sake of an activity, intrinsic motivation, but something that might also cause societal influences. Um, bringing artificial intelligence in that with all the ramifications for ethics, uh, the education system, science, uh, what it might do to our society. Um, and so one of the things, again, I find fascinating about Wayne's project is that he's, he's drawing a contrast between what AI is, that there has to be this sort of external, using the language that you were describing, there has to be this external motivator, there has to be this external directive, and that is, that is the thing that provides the action for the element. But in the human condition, the human activity, we consider things to be pure and you can't see you can't see quotes and on, 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 on that audio but the, the things can be pure 
in the intrinsic motivation of the process. And, and so him drawing this distinction between these two things really helped me as a thinker see some, uh, have larger conversations about what artificial intelligence is and how eventually what what some of the things that, that his project has allowed me to see is that a lot of the, the topic or conversation about AI is bound in, misusing language isn't quite the right word, but we're trying to imply language intended originally for human function, human desires, human motivation, and apply it to a thing that is foundationally other or different. And so, as a result, we are either going to have to rethink the words that we're using or reinvent new words. And so, for somebody who's you know focuses on English, you know how the fluid nature of language. Um, but it's it's a it, it was it was very interesting for me and very helpful for me in some larger conversations that I've had this past year about the use of AI at a university to all of those things because of the project that he was working on, all hinging on this sort of distinction uh, that he made about motivational efforts between human thought and artificial intelligence. Yeah, and we talked about that a little bit yesterday, this idea of the the words and the language that are being used. And we, we questioned um, a word like generative, right? That, you know, there is now a, a distinction between, you know, generative technology and other types of technology. But when we talk about generative, many people assume that, you know, something that comes from a human mind, right? When you generate an idea, an original idea, an idea comes from your brain, it comes from your mind, that's its first entrance into um, the world, that that's not what's happening with AI. Some, some complicated processes are happening, but what we would consider generically, I guess, <laughs> generically generative that's not really what's happening. And so that might be an example of one of those words that we really, we need to either find a different word to use or make it clear that when we're using it in connection with AI, we're talking about something different. Exactly. And, you know, this is the, this is the buffalo, 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 buffalo conversation where you have, uh, if we are using the same word, there runs the risk of misinterpreting or misunderstanding which version of the word that we're using. And so again, it 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 is an is interesting issue of language for me. And again, what I found fascinating about William's project is here we have some foundational disciplines within philosophy. We have epistemology. We have uh, metaphysics. You know, the question: What does it mean to be human? Uh, we have some Embryan elements of his psychology training and background. We have AI all intermingling together in this really fascinating project uh, that that. Again, I know I said it before, is, is one of the, the best projects that I've had the opportunity to encounter. So, uh, but yeah, so anything else you want to add about the project? Yeah, what you both were saying about like the language, that's uh, an essential part of epistemology, just the knowledge of what it might mean, how we uh, interpret it, right? Um, and that's something that I covered in my project as well. We had many discussions about this. Um, so we could try to be as careful as we can or create like new terms for uh, these concepts. But when it comes to artificial intelligence, um, something that might be modeled upon the human mind or logic system, it yet can move past that 
can we even apply the same epistemological framework on these artificial minds? So something that might work for us to describe might not even be relevant at all for this concept. Um, you might be able to explain. No, no, yeah. So, so again, we we the link it goes back to what we were saying earlier that the language about the framework of brain neurology epistemology is grounded in the very distinct human experiences, and we are apply as you were describing the issue of generative. It's it is you know in in philosophy we have different cases. Uh, I mentioned it before in other conversations. The Chinese room was traditionally called the Chinese room problem, which is is being able to regurgitate and recount necessarily knowledge and the conclusion. One of the conclusions in the earlier versions of that problem is that. Just being able to recount doesn't necessarily equate to knowledge, and and so what we end up having is this. I, I keep going back to foundations. This this foundational thing of with all of the concerns about AI. If we're going to talk about it, we are really going to have to think about the language that we're using. And the longer that this goes on, the more I'm pretty convinced that it's insufficient. And that we're trying to apply um, human humanistic language to something that is other, and that's leading that's dangerous territory. No matter how you go, and dangerous maybe isn't quite the right word, but it's problematic territory. It's problematic for understanding what AI is, and it's problematic for understanding what we are. And so, um, having to really rethink the words that we use and the way that we think about it, and uh, not to be too pessimistic, because I'm here with William, I, I don't know if it's too late for that change to happen or that thought process to happen. But I do think that that is something that, as we move forward and this technology continues to advance, um, you know, again, at the time where this is being recorded, we're within a few weeks, uh, within a few days, actually, of talking about how AI is a problem on par or greater than global warming, or and they're describing. Um, international uh, groups working together akin to nuclear weapons about how to address this. And if the words that we're using to even begin to approach the problem are insufficient, then how in the world can we even begin to try to address the large problem if the symbols that we use don't successfully signify the object? So... It's a little pessimistic there, but William's project was really good. So. It's a sort of uh, complex um, instance of anthropomorphizing. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, that's almost the best way we can explain that uh, defied that's happening there. Um, but, yeah, so what he was explaining about, like, global warming and, like, all these effects that it might have on science and how it's comparative to those uh, topics. Um, that's something I wanted to bring into my paper too as well. So that brings in the ethics part of it. Uh, even bioethics, it's got philosophy of science, um, philosophy of work. So we're talking about, um, if I may, I my I had a conclusion in my uh, paper. It's kind of covers what we can do with artificial intelligence. And there's three options that we can do. We can regress by either banning it or being super hesitant about it and um, just being very restrictive in what how we can apply it. 
uh, that's one way we could go. We could stagnate, um, and that with with that comes hesitancy to really bring it into our society. So we're still kind of. It's, I would say it's about where we're at now. We're trying to decide what to do with artificial intelligence. So we're stagnating. Um, progress comes with the full emergence of AI into a society, whatever it may come. Um, and that is why um, humanity is all the more important now. Because with a technological world, something that's going to be so ingrained with our daily lives coming soon, uh, moving forward, we need to really get in touch with uh, what being human really is and how we can explore um, the impact that humanity has. Yeah, and so, so think about this in terms of our normal advancement, right? So each of us carry a computer in our pockets that sometimes may or may not be vibrating in the middle of our conversations, but we have a computer in, the in our pockets. The technology has vastly changed our world, you know, for those uh, older folks in the room. Uh, remember at a time where we had answering machines and we weren't expected to be available at any given time. We were all, we, we had time off. We could, you know, that's not really the case anymore. So there's this integration of, of technology into our, our, our daily lives. But the, the issue is that when it comes to thinking about these technologies, there is an underlying dangerous, scary underbelly to it. So we can have conversations about lithium and how lithium is harvested and who has access and control of lithium mines. We talk about um, systemic oppression of people groups because of the means to push this technology, technological development. There is something that is a regular convenience to us that as soon as we're done with this talk on the, or in the, the, this interview, we, you know, we're going to check our phones. But that's a phone that has cultural implications, environmental implications, ecological implications, and it is important for us because it's easy for us to gloss over, but it's important for us to reflect on those impacts. It's important for us to not just blindly push forward with technology and think about the complicated, wicked problem nature that these tools associate with us because tools... By in my mind, tools are inherently dangerous. They're not bad nor good inherently. They just do what they're designed to do. Uh, a knife can provide the the basis for a, a wonderful meal, you know, especially with an individual with good knife skills, or it can be used to harm another individual. And so, um, we have how we ethically carefully approach these technologies will shape who we are as a society as a whole as well as who we are individually yeah and 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 we hope that there will be the same kind of thoughtful approach um, when it comes to ai um, it's not the first like you say revolutionary technology but revolutionary technology almost always brings with it the possibility of tremendous financial gain. And so that becomes something that has to be tempered. And that's not always easy to halt, right? When there's a desire to not just make money, but be the quickest to make money off of something, that's when we start to have to battle a little bit harder to make sure that kind of 
thoughtful engagement with the new technology, with the new emerging changes in our society become so important. And I think that that in and of itself really pushes for this idea of having people in the humanities and social sciences talk about your you know, work in psychology. All of these people need to be involved in this discussion, not just those who are steeped in the technological aspects of it. Um, let me ask you this. How did you, you talked about talking to Professor Larson and um, seeing what he had to say. How did you like the interdisciplinary experience that you had? How did you like getting out of your, um, your major and looking at literature from and talking to people who were experts in other fields? It was well, first off, it was really fascinating to just get so many different perspectives and find a way to unite them all in a way that would be applicable, but also see its uh, weaknesses. Because when, you, when you're trying to fit so many disciplines together, like a jigsaw puzzle, you see which pieces don't fit and which pieces do. Um, yeah, so it's been very... I was uh, telling Dr. Wolf um, how in a normal undergrad setting, perhaps even in a graduate setting, um, it's very rare, almost impossible to get such an extensive experience and uh, crossing over between so many topics and fields. Um, so... Yeah, one of the main things about the academic world today is it's so divided. And we're trying to find ways to bring everything together here and there. But interdisciplinary study allows students to do that from the get-go um, and gain the experience needed to uh, reason on many different levels, um, evaluate uh, different pairs of lenses uh, to one topic, and multiple, depending on what you're doing. Um, and, I, and I think that, you know, students themselves are usually very interested in the idea of complicated problems. And so students, uh, you know, so, so, you know, let's pick something purely hypothetical. Let's imagine, I don't know, a basketball team, we'll put them in L.A., okay? If we have, like, a group like the Lakers, uh, there's a comp like them becoming successful is a complicated issue, right? So they have to deal with economics and psychology and physical health and all of those things coming together in order for them to be a successful team, right? And so the students, the things that matter most to students are by their nature interdisciplinary. And I think that as an instructor trying to show the students what my discipline does, but inherently make it clear that this is not a complete process, that it is necessary by the nature of the problem to bring in psychologists, to bring in uh, computer science individuals, to bring in uh, literature individuals, all of these things that, you know, again, if we're going to have a, anything from a successful sports team to a successful business, there needs to be multiple experts in the room. Uh, working together to to drive and, and address these problems, and and I think that what I've seen consistently about my students is that uh, they are they are interested in complicated things, 
and they are aware that one particular lens is insufficient in addressing those complicated things. And they, there is a desire for interdisciplinary learning, and there is a desire for interdisciplinary thought because that is the way that the language that they are seeking for is found. So in one discipline by itself is insufficient and will be insufficient. And that echoes a theme that has been you know, voiced throughout this conference. And I certainly hope that moving forward, that that's also something that Utah Tech University as an institution continues to encourage and, you know, just as importantly, maybe more importantly, support, support that interdisciplinary study, support the faculty members who design it, but also the students who engage in it and the kind of experience so that they can have experiences similar to the one that you've had. Yeah. So um, one of the key things about such an interdisciplinary project is, or even independent studies in general, um, is like I discussed in my project, the intrinsic motivation that comes with it. So you can uh, compare going to class on this specific topic that you might be excited to learn about, right? But it's, it's structured. It's, um, I don't want to say limiting, but it is, honestly, you you have tiers of knowledge that you can get through with a typical class section. But in an interdisciplinary um, project, you're able to take that advantage of that flexibility and um, really get into it on your own accord. And that really stems from your own motivation. So it's, I... I would say it's very hard to imagine a student who wants to do interdisciplinary study and then fails to do it because they have that drive to get started with it anyways. Um, yeah, I think I think William does bring up a good point that you know there's a larger question about the kind of individual who succeeds in this situation. And William is extremely uh, motivated. He's extremely passionate about learning, passionate about thinking about complicated things. And there's a larger question, a larger meta question about how do we work with students to light that fire about learning. And as a philosopher, I can point back to conversations that, you know, as far back as Plato has about how we develop what he calls the sort of philosophic soul, this passion. Uh, and actually the language that he uses is eros, which, you know, that carries with it some interesting language to implications too. But he says that the love of learning is eros, that it needs to be a passion-driving, fixated force. And if we're frank, not, not that, that sort of quality isn't found in every student that we encounter. And so meta-questioning, how do we drive students to be that kind of independent learner? How do we have them pursue knowledge, not for the letter grade, but for their passion and interest in the larger goals that they have, that's that's a big question. And beyond the scope of the 30 or so minutes that we were talking for right now, but that is a lingering question that William is right about the motivation, but we're also at an issue where not, that isn't universally expressed in students. It'd be nice if it could be, but we have to think of a way to drive more students to that uh, self-motivating love of learning focus as part of their education. That's a great point. That's a great point. Well, thank you so much um, for joining me and giving me some of your thoughts about what sounds like a, a really fascinating project that I think was of really 
rewarding project for you. So, um, like I said, we are at the 2023 Global Polytechnic Summit here at Utah Tech, and I've been joined by Dr. John Wolf and his student, William Hallsworth. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. We're back with another installment of a report from the 2023 Global Polytechnic Summit here at Utah Tech University. We have two English professors from Utah Tech, Joy McMurrin and Lacey Hope, and they just presented on a couple of projects that they are doing in their classes. And these projects revolve around a big problem that we are facing in the world, and that problem is e-waste, and that problem of e-waste is exacerbated by intentional obsolescence that we see in not just the technological industry, but in many industries. So uh, we'd like to welcome Joy McMurrin back to the program, Lacey Hope to the program for the first time. Tell us a little bit about this problem of e-waste and intentional obsolescence. So I will tackle and obsolescence. Um, and then I think Joy really uh, effectively and eloquently talked about e-waste. Um, and so I'd like to have her kind of provide more detail on that. Uh, but planned obsolescence is essentially this practice, and we see it um, especially strong in uh, digital devices where companies will basically make them uh, to... make it to where they uh, don't work after a certain number of years. So that's why, you know, you're buying an iPhone every four or five years, even though the newest version really isn't all that much different um, than, uh, you know, what was available, you know, a few years back, right? Can I just ask you a clarifying question there? Is it, is it, I mean, they just won't work or is there also this idea how much of it is, I got to get a new phone because it doesn't work? And how much of it is, I got to get a new phone because it's the newest, greatest thing? Ooh, that's a good question. Honestly, I would say the two kind of go hand in hand. Yeah, yeah. Where, of course, you know, we want the newest, the best. Um, but on that note, it almost kind of seems like these uh, these companies are saying, okay, well, we'll give you a reason for it, right? Um, we will, you know, you want the newest and the best? Okay, well, you know, we'll make it to where the camera in your tablet no longer works, or we will make it to where the touchscreen starts to become glitchy after two or three years, even though, you know, um, you know, you're buying it for eight or, you know, a tablet for eight or nine hundred dollars. Um, you'll have to reinvest in the years to come. And so, again, perhaps relying on the idea that consumers do want the best, the newest, the fastest, um, you know, and they're saying, okay, well, we can kind of get away with building things that are not meant to last um, and that are meant to become obsolete or outdated. Um, another good example of this is looking at, um, you know, how to charge devices. So I know with some of the newer um, Apple products, you have to have a certain cord versus another. And the uh, cords for the older devices will not work for the newer devices. And so you kind of have to, you know, there's planned obsolescence right there with how you can actually charge and use these, even if the device in and of itself still functions properly. If you can't charge it, then 
you know, what good is it? Yeah. And, and they had, you know, the people in the technological fields had a good model to follow. I don't know much about the history of planned obsolescence, but certainly one of the biggest uh, industries to, to pioneer that is the automobile industry, right? And that idea of the prestige that comes with a new car certainly has transferred to the prestige of having the newest and latest device. Absolutely. And what I find especially interesting is, and perhaps we can revisit this later on, is that with iFixit, they actually use the automotive industry um, as kind of an example for the right to repair. Um, so basically saying that if, let's say, you drive a Toyota, right, um, you can take it, you don't have to take it exclusively to a Toyota dealership in order to get a, a repair done. Like if you have a flat tire or if you need your oil changed rather, um, or even if you came to have a completely new engine put in. Um, rather, you can shop around, you can do that yourself, and the information is essentially available to individuals to carry out this work themselves. Um, so basically saying, you know, if that is the case with the automotive industry, if folks can change their own oil, change a flat tire, or do these major repairs to their vehicles, or shop around outside of the company itself, then why can't we do that with electronics? And many... Um, Electronic companies today actually have it to where if you uh, open up the device, then the warranty is completely uh, void. And even if you want to try and fix it yourself, take it to someone who is more knowledgeable, whether you know that be a neighbor or someone uh, who has a company that does that, um, then even if the uh, fix can't be done or done effectively, then that company will say, okay, well, you no longer have a warranty because we didn't make the repair ourselves. And of course, when you take it to the company or you send it back in, typically there are a lot of costs associated with that, which make it financially inaccessible and financially exclusive for a lot of folks to repair these devices that oftentimes they put a lot of money into purchasing in the first place. But uh, uh, Joy McMurrin, these this planned obsolescence has some dire consequences for the environment. It does. Um, I'll talk about e-waste in a second, but I do want to say just one thing about land obsolescence as a business model, which I said in my presentation, I think is obscene. Um, I think we can turn it around. There is some prestige, but also think about the prestige of having um, beautiful diamonds. And now we're aware of, of black market diamonds and we even call them blood diamonds now. The same thing is happening um, with everything from chocolate, uh, you know, to tortillas in the food world. And there can be some social consequences if we're if we all kind of get on board and we make green cool again, right? And there can be some prestige in retro in having <laughs> the most outdated. Uh, device with updated software sure. and there is a way to to create technology that's repairable that's updatable um, and we're, we're allowing policy we're allowing business practices um, that are harmful in the face of a climate crisis I think is inhumane and we're all just kind of all on board with it myself included I just shrug my shoulders and say well what else can I do um, so we recognize there's an e-waste problem too, um, 
and especially as writing instructors, the four of us sitting here chatting now are all writing professors, and think of the writing technologies alone and, and the ways that our classrooms and the expected expectations we have for our students to have certain devices and access to the internet and all of these things demand material electronics um, that come with immaterial consequences. And um, so Lacey and I recognize the the vulnerability and that we're exacerbating environmental and economic and health precarities for um, particular people um, around the world, um, especially those having to deal with the with the immediate consequences of e-waste. We're all going to have to deal with the long-term consequences, but there are people, especially in the global south, um, and uh, who are who are suffering. Um, immediate consequences of e-waste. Um, it's been called at the at the global session of the Science Policy Business Forum on the Environment, um, the Health and Environmental Justice Support Organization named e-waste as the fastest growing environmental threat. And um, so we need to address it. So that's what Lacey and I do. We're trying to address it in our classrooms with our technical writing students. Yeah, I have to say my response this morning when you... you uh relayed that information was, you know, I, I, I was aware of e-waste, but to be perfectly honest, when I think about the global climate challenges that we're facing, it wasn't top priority in my mind. And when you read, read that information and presented that information, I just was like, oh, you know, this, there's an even bigger problem than the one that I've been struggling with, you know, thinking about. So, um, something that has to be done, but something that we can all do something about, right? Yeah, I, I think so. I think we can. And the more we all are in the conversation and especially actively doing something about it, the more that um, projects out to the other people in our circles and there's a ripple effect and that's how you have social change. You have, you you know, the the shame that comes with wearing blood diamonds didn't just come out of nowhere. It was built over time incrementally until socially we all agreed, yeah, this is really problematic. But one of the things as a consumer that I think about rhetorically is that technology almost becomes like fashion where it's cool for a period of time then it's not. I mean, I know I've had students that will make, they're like, you still have an iPhone. I have an iPhone SE. I'm a big SE fan because they're cheap and they just do the job. Right. And they're like, what? What? That's like outdated. And I think, but it's a phone. It has just a purpose. It doesn't need to be. I, I have a, a Honda Accord, a 2000 Honda Accord, and it will probably be around longer than any of us. It, it will last forever. And in some ways, there's just this idea that why are you still using that? Why are you still and that strong pull of it's not cool to have something old, uh, it, it, that is a really strong pull that I see with our students and, and I even see with with peers. And to add to that, what's frustrating when you're talking about a technological and with instructors is that I've had technology where someone from IT will come in and say, oh, well, that won't update anymore. That won't work anymore with what we're doing. And I, in my mind, I'm thinking, well, I don't grasp the the reason why that is, but why is it that you've built something that will not be compatible with future updates? And I, I mean, I, is that part of planned obsolescence where they know, oh, 
well, in five years, this machine won't work with this program. And we kind of know that. So they're going to have to buy the program again and another piece of hardware. Yeah, the device. The yeah. device is the problem. And for those of you listening at home who've never met Jim, just know there's consensus among everyone on campus that he is the coolest faculty what? around. And so this is, this don't, shocking let, news don't let the news about the Honda and the SE oh. uh, <laughs> trick you into thinking he's not super cool. He's going to be the trendsetter. He's oh, going to be the one to make I fix it and uh, saving your technology as long as possible cool. I've, I've researched whether I can register my Honda Accord in the um, classic car. Uh, unfortunately, I don't think I can, but it is 2000. Like I was kind of joke. It can, my car can drink. It's 22, 23 years old. It's That's funny. <laughs> so my car is old enough to, to start collecting social security at some point, but um, in car years, but uh, yeah. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about um, how you've brought this issue and how you've brought um, this wonderful uh, work being done by iFixit into your classrooms. Do you want to start off, Lacey? Lacey actually uh, in introduced me to iFixit. She has longer experience with the organization than I do. Yeah, so um, I will say I, you know, like Joy mentioned, I've been working with iFixit um, since I was a graduate student. Um, and I myself have done the standard project for summer courses. I did the fast fix project as well. And it really was because I believe in their mission of fighting planned obsolescence, reducing e-waste through empowering everyday individuals to make these fixes that will prolong the life of their devices. Um, but also I see it as a really great opportunity for students to gain experience working with people outside of the classroom. I need not to downplay what we do as instructors, the feedback we provide, certainly not. But at the end of the day, you know, they are going to have to respond to a client. They are going to have to respond to a boss. And I think that that creates a different set of demands and so the better that we can prepare them for that um, as they get out after graduation into their careers, I think the better off that they're going to be. Now, this past fall, so the fall of 2022, I taught uh, Writing for Online Markets, which is an upper division tech writing course. And the way that I kind of wanted to re-envision it was basically saying, um, you know, the internet is vast. You know, there's a lot of stuff going on on the internet. And in order for your content and the things that you're doing in these digital spaces to break through, you have to write in a certain way. You have to include certain type of media. You have to be not just rhetorically aware of what the audience wants, but of course, what the algorithms want. Um, and so that was what I really, especially uh, during part of the course, wanted to focus on is how can students respond to the technology that's evaluating and thus prioritizing or not prioritizing uh, their work when someone conducts a, a search on, on Google or DuckDuckGo or Bing, uh, whatever search engine they happen to be using. 
Um, and so I thought that the SEO project uh, through iFixit would be a great, um, would serve a really good function in, in that course because one, um, it fit within what we were doing. Two, it, since these were all, or not all, but most of them were upper division technical writing students who are getting ready to graduate, giving them more professional experience, but also working with a company that I myself as an instructor could get behind, um, that I, whose mission I could support, um, whose mission I firmly believed in. Um, and so as I mentioned in the presentation, I would say that um, throughout the project, uh, there, there were a lot of challenges especially because um, students were not working with familiar devices. Um, and in fact, with the SEO project, um, so as I'm sure Joy will discuss, you know, students with the standard project were working hands-on. With the SEO project, that wasn't the case. So rather, uh, iFixit basically sent a, uh, a sheet, uh, a Google sheet of device pages that were really sparse, didn't have a ton of content that really needed to be revamped and said, okay, pick one. And so many of them uh, were medical devices, um, things like defibrillators and um, scanning software, um, scanning machines. And others were, there was a lot of hardware tools on there as well. And so this was very much outside of the students' wheelhouse, and they would regularly admit that. And I think the research process took us the longest because they're like, we have no idea how a defibrillator works. We've only seen it in movies. I'm like, same here. Well, good luck with the research. Let's see what we can do. Um, but again, it all circles back to how can we prolong the use of these otherwise good devices? And I will say expensive devices as well, especially when you get into that medical equipment. Uh, but of course, anyone going to Lowe's or Home Depot knows that sometimes that those hardware tools and technologies can run up um, a pretty decent bill as well. And so students were asked, you know, to think, okay, well, how can we craft our writing um, how can we become so familiar with the ins and outs of these conversations um, and of, of these devices um, to basically utilize keywords properly to include the proper links so that way when, you know, the web crawlers are going through our content, they say this is quality. This matches the uh, search query that um, some internet user plugged in to the search box. And so we're going to put it toward the top um, rather than hiding it on the, um, you know, hiding it on page two, because who goes to page two um, on on Google? But using iFixit again is just something that I think, again, gave students really great professional experience also um, with a good purpose behind it um, with that they could say, you know, not only did we get something out of it individually that we can put on our resume, that we can speak to in interviews. But we also are now a part of this fight of, of contributing to e-waste. We are now empowering other individuals to make these fixes. Um, and they are going to be able to more easily locate this content, um, these, these repair guides, because of 
the revisions that we made to the existing pages and the content, the additional content that we created um, for that as well. There, in a, in a previous session, I believe it was Monday, there was a talk uh, where someone was saying, they sounded like they were from a STEM background and they were saying, you know, sometimes humanities people, they want to be heard, but then we ask them to, to get invested in technology. Like, well, that's not my thing. And this sounds like there's an investment in, in humanities of wanting to know the inner workings, which kind of goes in the face. And I think that idea needs to be promoted because you we want as humanities people to say, yeah, we want to know how the technology works. We don't want to just say, pay attention to us and read the things that we read. But when you ask me to code, I don't want to code. That that we we want to demystify the technology. Um, another thing I was thinking about when you were talking is that I'm um, speaking of dis demystifying. Is is there a vested interest in sort of making that technology? Uh, locked away to the public and that what you're doing and what you're talking about actually helps sort of bring the technology to the public. Because I think about earlier on when you were saying how Apple's pretty notorious for if you open up the Apple computer, warranty's void, we can't help you. And I versus PCs, which are kind of like, yeah, just buy your hard drives online and open up your computer and do whatever you want with it. I, I always kind of wondered in this idea of, well, we have everything. You don't look behind the curtain. You just give us your money. And and so do you think there's sort of a revolutionary aspect in what you're teaching students to say everybody wants access to what's going on inside uh, of the, the technology? I think so. Um, and what's especially interesting, because as I keep up with iFixit and what they're doing, um, I know that on sort of the more civically engaged side, um, they're working with lawmakers at state levels um, and at the federal level as well for right to repair um, to work its way into into law. Um, so therefore preventing companies from sort of having this curtain up. And I will say that some companies are actually taking initiative in response um, to that. I know I believe it's Google recently partnered with iFixit um, to for uh, some of their new phones to basically say, okay, well, how can we, you know, do these repair guides? How can we make, you know, the um, how can we make the repair guides more accessible? How can we make them more user friendly? And so there are larger tech companies that are certainly taking to this. And I, I think, you know, the work with students, um, maybe not the main, maybe that's not the main cause behind it, but I think it certainly helps because students who are also voters, who are also publicly engaged are now becoming interested in these topics and they're saying, okay, well, you know, what if, you know, with all of these devices, again, especially the pricier ones, um, you know, that we've sunk a lot of money into or that can have the most uh, negative impact uh, through environmental damage, how can we make it to where these companies are more open about um, about the repair process? So one of the ethical principles I turn to most as a technical writer is the idea of informed choice. And I think right to repair aligns with that ethical um, 
approach the idea of giving people choice and right to repair is not obligation to repair, mm-hmm. right? You still have the right to purchase the, the newest, you know, the, you still have the right to get your prestige through purchases, right? Um, but if you choose not to, you have, you then have the ability right now, so much tech is prohibitive, cost prohibitive, knowledge prohibitive, expertise, mechanical. Um, there's all kinds of um, guardrails against repair. Um, and so that's, I fix it. We didn't emphasize that at all um, in our in our presentation. So I'm glad Lacey mentioned that now. I fix it as an organization is working with policymakers is trying to change leg- legislation that improves the right to repair. Um, and not even just through policy, um, but by through volunteer cooperation from corporations. So. Joy, I know you have to um, leave us and go teach. Um, why don't we do this? Could we get a informal promise uh, from you to come back and talk to us later? Because your work in your um, English 2010 class with the iFixit standard project and what you had those students do and the um, work that they were able to um, uh, produce was really astounding. And I wasn't alone in my admiration. Um, The provost spoke to me afterwards and talked about how impressed he was about what's going on in your classroom. So we get a commitment from you to come back and talk about that in detail on a future program. Yeah, I'd be happy to. I do want to make a quick correction. It is English 2100. I don't I don't want anybody to hear this and think I'm doing this in 2010. Um, it's the technical writing class. So we have software engineers, mechanical engineers, um, graphic designers, and technical writers. I do want, before I leave, I want to say one one thing about Lacey said that one of her students said, I don't know anything about defibrillators. This isn't what I expected from an English class. I had a similar experience with one of my students having real trouble with the Dyson uh, blow dryer. It's like a $450 uh, blow dryer that is impossible to get into. I mean, it was really a frustrating product. And he, and he rightly was pretty frustrated. I took it home more than once to try to dig into it myself. But um, what he said to me was, um, I didn't I didn't sign up for technical writing class to learn to be a small appliance mechanic. I want to write. And I said, what are you going to write about? You know, and he said, I'm an English major for a reason. I said, well, writers don't just write about writing. I mean, you're limiting the scope of the work you can do and what can you can contribute to society if you just write about writing. I said, technical writers, and this is the takeaway for me, technical writers are mediators between experts and novices. We're the mediator between the product and the person. And that's the work that we do in the class with this iFixit project. We mediate between products and people to improve the lives of people. And that's the humanistic approach. It's it's not just that we're um, intrigued by or interested in or want to know more about technology. We want to know more about what we can do to improve a world governed by technology for people. So that would be my takeaway. Um, but anyway, I'd be happy to come back and talk to you both. Anyway, I'm going to run teach. Thanks. Thank you very much. I did have one follow-up question for you, Lacey. Um, 
So tell me a little bit about what are the techniques and um, approaches that you give us just some of the basic um, guidelines that you give to your to your students about this idea of SEO writing, the kind of writing. I know there are other factors that are going to push your um, your website or your um, your wiki or your blog or whatever it is uh, higher up a, a search engine. What are the writing techniques that students or anybody, not just students, anybody can use to kind of optimize the search engines? Again, a very good question. Um, so when it comes to text-based alphabetic writing, um, I think simplicity, conciseness, um, you know, which is a key component in effective technical writing. How can we make the content more accessible and more engaging to understand? But also uh, using keywords effectively. I think that perhaps is something we came back to quite frequently. And I uh, had mentioned this to the provost that while we are completing this project, uh, we also had a guest lecturer um, from up at Zonos uh, come in and speak with the class. And uh, this individual uh, was basically their SEO guru. Um, and so, and that was another thing that he stressed as well. And it's not just so much about using keywords, but using them properly right. in the correct context. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I actually thought about that earlier on in this interview when I used the phrase intentional obsolescence, and then you both said planned obsolescence. So if I were to write intentional obsolescence, that was probably going to have a very different effect than if I write planned obsolescence, which sounds to me like the more commonly used term. Exactly, exactly. And that's when, you know, and I, I'm sure that you all have discussed this with 1010 and 2010 students when you're teaching them how to uh, find articles on the library database, tinkering around with those keywords. If at first you don't find what you're looking for, okay, well, what synonyms can you put into place? Now, SEO writing, you know, we are challenged with saying, okay, well, what is the right, you know, what's the right word? Like we don't have the ability to tinker around with synonyms all that much. So going back to your example, if the accepted phrase um, is planned obsolescence, then we need to be aware of that. And then we need to use that again in the correct context. Right. Um, and so as, as the writers, we want to be aware of, okay, well, what is this discussion, this conversation going on about this topic? What are the words that people are using to describe it? Um, and how were they using that? And so by using the most commonly accepted keywords um, or key phrases with a particular topic in the appropriate context is going to help basically the web crawlers say, okay, well, this is quality material. This reflects the search query um, that a user posed. And so that way we can say, okay, well, you know, if you're looking for a good place to get a cookie dough shake in St. George, Utah, if I use cookie dough shake in St. George, Utah in an article that I'm writing or in a blog post that I'm writing, 
um, then it is more likely, of course, to get boosted than if I use cookie dough and shake and St. George in separate places within an article, um, within the same, um, you know, within the same post. And so it's just being aware of how keywords are used um, and how to incorporate that effectively into whatever it is you're writing. And of course, that's in, that's challenging, <laughs> yeah. um, but can definitely um, be beneficial overall. Right. And, and, and I think the implications are important because like we've been talking about here in this in your interview, sure, those of us who produce any kind of web content it can be a financial. It can be financially lucrative to appear higher in a search. But as you talked about in your presentation, these repair guides that you're having your students um, produce, we want people to be. You want people to be able to find them. You want people to be able to access them. You want people to have that ability to go online, find a step-by-step -step process that may help them fix something um, that they um, that is essential to them. And if they can't, if that content is buried, you know, deep in a in an in an in an online search, then it's not going to get out to as many people as it as you want it to. Absolutely, and I think it's especially critical for companies like iFixit that do not hide their content behind a paywall. Um, of course, there have been times where I have, you know said, okay, well, I'm looking to, you know, get instructions on how to repair a joystick for, you know, my gaming console, right? Um, and there will be times where you click on it and says, oh, you need to subscribe. You need to um, buy a membership or do something along those lines. So, of course, you know, those search results are, you know, because, again, they're using keywords effectively, um, their site architecture, their reputation, all of that, you know, meets the criteria for being prioritized higher on the search results. Um, but at the end of the day, what good does that do me if I'm in a position where I'm like, oh, I really don't want to spend, you know, $6 a month on a subscription just because I need this one repair guide or I need instructions on how to make this one fix. Um, and so especially with um, companies like iFixit using Creative Commons, promoting something that is open access, I think, becomes all the more important for quality SEO writing. Fascinating. Fascinating stuff. I mean, I was so, I was so uh, impressed and, you know, those moments when you just have something that you know a little bit about or you've heard a little bit about. And you have somebody present it to you and not only present it in an effective way, but present it in a way that makes you see this is something really important that we need to be thinking about and talking about. That's kind of the experience that I had in the presentation this morning. So um, really, I'm still working on processing everything that I've been presented with in the last 90 minutes or so. Well, thank you. They were definitely, you know, the students were great. I fix it was great. Um, and like I said, it's it's a mission that I think anyone can get behind, um, especially after they realize the weight of the problem, the severity of the problem. Um, students want to be a part of it. Now, that's one thing that I really do appreciate about the students here at Utah Tech is that if you say this, you know, if you say, hey, there's this issue going on, here's a project where we can help be a part of the solution in some way, shape or form. 
nine times out of 10, you know, they're like, uh, okay, we're in, you know, this seems like something worth, um, you know, addressing. And if we can do that in a, you know, within the confines of the course, that that's awesome. We're here for it. And like I said, even though there were certainly some challenges, my students kept a very positive, optimistic attitude because of what their work was going to contribute and, and what was going to come of all of the research um, and all of the writing and, and all of the revisions that they ultimately did to have their pages published. Which is a wonderful way to move students away from sort of the leveling and the credentialing that happens in education to be, to actually then turn the focus to how do I impact the world? Absolutely. Which is really, I think, what brings us probably to work every day is not just, a, oh, all right, well, I'm just going to move a student from an upper division or a lower division to an upper division <laughs> course. No, I want a student to go from my class to making environmental changes to our world or changes our world that will positively impact our environment. I mean, Absolutely. that's that's the exciting part. That's not It's not the fact that they're necessarily getting awards and medals along the way just to for their for their paycheck i want them to make an impact in this world and, and that sounds like your project is is directing them towards their passion or that type of passion absolutely and i i'm excited to hear more about what joy has to say about this because i know uh, you know all of the students in my course were english majors um, and so, but as she had mentioned earlier on, many of the students that she was working with were engineering students. So I'm even more excited to hear about her experiences with that, with students that we don't interact with that come from different disciplines, different academic backgrounds, and perhaps how that mentality can translate into other professional and academic sectors. Well, that's great. Thank you so much for joining us. And again, congratulations on a very successful presentation and um, continued success in your work with projects like this. So this has been another of our on-the-spot interviews from the 2013 Global Polytechnic Summit here at Utah Tech University. We're back again at the 2023 Global Polytechnic Summit. And we've got three guests right now who are from the University of Wisconsin-Stout. Joining us are Professors Mitch Ogden and Jennifer Ashwood, and graduate research graduate student Olivia DeCasta, who's a graduate student in industrial design. Oh, undergraduate student in industrial design. Oh, excuse me. I'm sorry about that. Undergraduate student in industrial design. Perfect. Um, let's start off our conversation by talking about the way that you've been able to incorporate humanities fabrication into a collaboration with people in the, let's extend STEM and say, STEAM disciplines. Well, Mitch, I'm going to have you yeah. start us off. Yeah, thanks, Jennifer. So, and so we'll take from STEAM, from STEM to STEAM, and then if you will, We'll take it to steam. <laughs> and so if we if we put that H for humanities in there, yeah. uh, we have right a much more expansive and inclusive and really kind of provocative and interesting configuration of disciplines together. 
And so humanity's fabrication uh, is one way. I think there's a lot of promise and possibility for the humanities to have a place um, in this space where they have often kind of been uh, uh, left out or or on the fringe at best. So th- being able to to actually physically create uh, objects and artifacts that have historical importance, uh, that speak to cultural movements, uh, that may be tied into uh, particular uh, social groups. Uh, that's the spirit of, of uh, humanities fabrication. And, and I think Gentry Sayers should be named uh, as a, a scholar at the University of Victoria in British Columbia. Uh, as one who's, who's been, a, I think, a really meaningful uh, developer of the ideas of this um, through his Kids for Cultural History. Uh, and so it's, uh, it becomes a, a, a way to, uh, to kind of draw in museum studies, uh, to draw in archives, uh, to draw in material history right into a fab lab space, right into space of engineers and designers, uh, artists and creators and makers, uh, and, and really pull in then big, uh, big questions about uh, about history, about culture, uh, and about the things that matter to us as humans, right? Which is right, what drives the humanity. Excellent, excellent. I, I I think those ideas are great, and I like adding to the acronym. Make it make it longer. I I agree with that completely. Let's talk about the specific project that you presented on. The, the redesign of the spaghetti spinner. Tell us about this. Mitch, I think you provide a little bit of background and then we can go from there. Yeah, so the, the story of it is uh, once I met Gentry Sayers and saw what they were doing in their lab in, uh, in Canada with this humanities fabrication, I really got excited. I wanted to do something uh, as well. And I, uh, to try to con- to constrain it uh, and help give some focus, I thought, well, let's as a as a public university in the state of Wisconsin, let's let's pick an artifact that uh, is attached to our state. So I had a a, a research assistant uh, who looked at kind of every invention or innovation uh, attributed to right Wisconsinite, uh, and it's a long list, right, from Harley Davidson motorcycles uh, to the Sunbeam stand mixer. Wisconsin's produced a lot of interesting uh, and good things, but none of them really kind of fit the bill until she found this character, and I mean that quite intentionally, Russell Oaks, who gave himself the name Professor I Am Nut. <laughs> and Russell Oaks was, uh, was an ad man. That's what his day job was, but he's also a garage tinkerer. And so he would make these clever, absurd contraptions, gadgets, of convenience in his garage. Uh, and then he had a whole show, a traveling show that he would take to, to business meetings um, where he would uh, show off these wacky things. And in fact, uh, he even uh, funded trips to Hollywood uh, where he would shoot newsreels at Paramount Studios uh, so he would get some uh, uh, sort of coverage uh, at the movie theaters where people would, would see their, their uh, newsreel before the short, before the feature film, when they went to the movies on Saturday. So uh, he, one of his many, many gadgets that are held in the Waukesha County History Museum uh, in Waukesha, Wisconsin, was this spaghetti spinner. Uh, it's 
really just an egg beater uh, with the with the kind of whisk removed and a fork put in its place, so you can wind up your spaghetti more easily uh, with the power of a, of a gear and a handle and the spin. So that's just for me. It's just a kind of like absurd, ridiculous, um, wacky item that that raises a lot of interesting questions and makes something kind of fun for students to explore. So I think uh, I think. You know, Dan and Olivia now have, have dug in deep on this particular contraption. I think we'll have a lot to say on, on how they approach it as well. So Mitch approached me about a year ago asking if there would be a possibility for a collaboration. And it just so happened with their schedule, we were able to work this past spring. So I called in Olivia and we did an independent study. Uh, Mitch had prior to this point gone into a fifth grade classroom and had another stu- group of students work on this spaghetti spinner. And there's some challenges with it. I think it took 75 minutes for it to be constructed in class. Is that correct, Mitch? Yeah. And so we were working on the design detailing fabrication. So our goal was Mitch was our client and we were working on making the contraption more fun, more whimsical, but also easier to put together so that uh, the focus for when he went to the fifth grade classroom and talked to him about the process or about the historical aspects of this, that they're focused on that versus like the pain and torture of putting the contraption together. Um, So there were a lot of things that we tweaked in the process and Olivia focused on the design full heartedly. Want to talk about that? So basically, once I had received the initial 1.0 spinner from Mitch, um, it had been more engineered than designed. So I got to basically go all in with the design aspect of it. And I also wanted to kind of incorporate, you know, this is a historical object, but what would it look like now with the capabilities of Fab Lab and the things we have today? They didn't have laser cutting. They didn't have 3D printing back then. So I really kind of wanted to push the design as far as possible and fully utilize the capabilities of the Fab Lab and the 3D printing. And um, throughout that process, we were able to get the time down to about 20 minutes, which is just awesome because then Mitch was able to go in and explain more of the concepts of humanities and that sort of thing and how it's applicable. And they're not just getting frustrated trying to put something together. Weren't spending all their time in the in the assembly process. Yes, yes. Some assembly required, right? When it, it sounds like your project is, it's creating a lot of avenues to communicate with different stakeholders, which is an important part. I, I know that that every student needs to realize that they're not going to to work in a vacuum. That they're you're going to work with clients. You're going to work in group. I mean. I, Every time I say this is a group project, a student will groan and go, oh, I thought I was just able to do all my work alone and not have to work with other people. So is that, were there any hiccups in the sort of communication and stakeholder process that are intentional hiccups, uh, Mitch being the client, uh, were, were, were there times when you were just being difficult? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Mitch, were you being difficult at all? I'm such an easygoing guy. <laughs> I, mean, I think the reality is this is what this is the the both the real affordance of collaboration 
but but also the pain. There were, and I, I I think I feel comfortable saying this with given the strength and the collaboration that we had. Like there were definitely design decisions that I was like, wait a minute, because so version 1.0, you have to understand, and your listeners can't can't see the thing, but it was very literal. Like like I mean, so that I had I I had brought uh, I'd hired an industrial design student to make that first version, and as Olivia characterized it. It was very engineered and it was very literal. And that was the instruction I gave her. Make this look as much as possible like this original artifact that's sitting in the museum. Um, and so uh, he was constrained by that kind of directive. Um, and and there was a part of me that was really attached. Like This is like a literal kind of recreation. Uh, it, it, it was made of plastic and wood and not the same. It, was, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't fool you, right, as a replica by any sense. And that was never the point, but it had the dimensions and it had the look and feel of the thing. But that had that was what led us to this painful uh, build process. It was just overwrought. So there were definitely times as the collaborator, I was like, "But you changed it. It was different now." And and I think I think Jennifer and Lydia they could see it in my eyes. I'm like, "Well, but like, what that doesn't look." But that is ultimately what move the project ahead uh, to uh, to really ac accomplish some of these bigger goals, as Olivia said, where there's actually time to talk about the bigger questions instead of just being like stuck. I mean, I'm running around with a, with a rivet gun in a fifth grade classroom, like attaching. Yeah, it was, it was, uh, I wouldn't say a hot mess, but the mess was pretty warm. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned talking about other things once the um, assembly uh, uh, takes place, what are the things that you talk about with these these fifth graders and what are the other things you talk about with students in connection with this um, collaborative project? I think part of the unintended consequence was just asking them uh, questions about if you could develop a machine to do anything to make your life easier, what would you do? I remember hearing Mitch say that in the class, and it was really interesting to hear what the fifth grade students thought about it. And you can see right away, even in a fifth grade classroom, how there's like a fear to come up with an idea because some students were very quiet, but then some students spoke right up, and it was really fun to see their excitement. Um, was that different than the first time that you presented to the class, Mitch? Yeah, I mean, truth be told, like I couldn't fit that question in, like quite literally. Uh, the, the initial visit, so a year ago, uh, it was, hey, here's this guy, his name's Russell Oaks, here's this fork, we're going to make it, don't ask any questions, like, we don't have time, you know, grab your partner and like like, like lay the bolts out right, in, in ascending order. Like, it was too complex. And so we missed those opportunities to ask those questions. And those questions are the only ones that really matter. If, if I can zoom out just a, a little bit to where this project really, really began, my son was a fifth grader in this uh, in, in, in his fifth grade classroom. And I was super impressed. It was this teacher's first year in our district, in our school. And he had uh, several 3D printers. And I thought, man, that is, that's so unusual to have 3D printers in a fifth grade classroom. I'm so excited to see what they do with these. And I remember one day my son came home from class and he had this 3D printed frog, a little a little small frog, maybe the size of like a half dollar. And uh, I said, well, that's cool. Did you guys talk about 
frog life cycle or frogs in the ecosystem. And he's like, no, I just found a frog, printed it, and thought it would be cool. And I was like, um, like so here it is, this great technology, but like really not serving a real purpose. And that's where I'm like, you know, if we do use these technologies, they're almost always for uh, an entrepreneurial business endeavor or right to solve an engineering problem. And that's where I said they should also be able to support, uh, you know, humanity. Um, well, for that matter, like biological sciences, right? Like why not, right? Talk about frogs and then print a frog, but talk about the frogs first. And so, and so again, so what Olivia and Jennifer really did is help uh, really get me to the purpose of this project, which was not to build a fork. Um, the purpose of the project was really to have this conversation about why do we like machines so much? Why do we expect them to do our jobs for us? Is there any problem with that? Do we have an over-reliance on, on, uh, on tools and gadgets? Do we have an over-reliance on our digital apps uh, to do everything for us? And so these, uh, the collaboration really allowed us to actually accomplish that purpose of the, of the project from the very beginning. Yeah, and those are very important questions to be asking. You know, how much, how many times in the last several months have those questions come up surrounding ChatGPT? Right. I mean, those are the very questions we're 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 finding ourselves having to ask. Excellent. Um, I'd like to just um, ask you, what kind of support did you get from your institution for this kind of cross-disciplinary project? And is this something that you think could continue? This kind of project could be uh, lead to other interdisciplinary or cross-disciplinary projects at your institution? Well, in terms of support, um, the institution supported us to have an independent study with Olivia. So she was able to do it in her curriculum. Um, so that was really helpful uh, to do that. In terms of financial support, I would say the university also supplied materials for fabrication, for laser cutting, and also for digital printing, 3D printing. Um, did, we also have our, our fab lab space, which I'm sure these are configured differently on different campuses, but. But our fab lab is open to all students, all faculty, really all members, uh, right, of the campus community uh, to use. Uh, and so, you know, two laser cutters, uh, a CNC router, uh, several 3D printers, um, and and I think importantly, the you know the expertise and the support of the director uh, and the and the and the lab uh, technicians who support students. And so, having that kind of space where um, you know, outside of a of a lab that's used for classroom purposes, um, it's really that's a that's a pretty valuable asset uh, that I've always been grateful for to have a you know fully outfitted um, fab lab that uh, that even even I as an English professor am allowed to go use. <laughs> uh, I think that that that's a pretty profound uh, piece of support from our institution, and it's it's, it's been established for you know for for many years um, on our campus. And also in our industrial design area, we have a bunch of 3D printers that we uh, were able to purchase because of sponsored projects and being able to um, support our students. So this process of this project required a lot of 3D 
printing and a lot of testing and tweaking of the design to get it to that 20-minute time slot of making sure that the students could put it together in that time period, and also to take out some other parts and some other hardware that was not necessary. I know in humanities, I'm always... Con- I'm I'm guilty enough of the oh well they're not giving any funding or resources to the humanities they're throwing diverting all this money to STEM and it's amazing how often if you just say if you just ask <laughs> or you have a good project idea they're like oh yeah definitely here's the funding here's the support and um, it's encouraging to see projects like this where you, you see yeah it's not that they're going to strip down funding here and and, and throw it there it's People have good ideas, and they're putting money towards good ideas and, and, and resources. So it's, this is great. Yeah, um, I wanted to ask you, Olivia, how did you find this project an enhancement to your overall education experience at the university? Well, I really liked being able to work with faculty like Mitch and Jen. They were just absolutely, I couldn't ask for better people to work with. And I also really liked the sort of independence of this project, like, it wasn't like a class where I had to go in every week at a set time. Um, usually almost every biweekly, Jen and I and Mitch would check up and sort of assess what was working and what wasn't and what needed to be done, that sort of thing. So I really kind of liked that. And I felt like that would be very applicable working with clients in the real world. You know, it'd be that sort of thing. You have to hold yourself accountable. There's no one going to be holding your hand necessarily when you get into the workforce, that sort of thing. And also it was a lot of um, just sort of like cross-disciplinary, talking to different people in different departments. Um, When can I get into the lab? How does this work? Training on the lab, that sort of thing that I really enjoyed to, to, you know, sort of get me to the next step. And also being here, I felt like was a very awesome opportunity to sort of network and that sort of thing. And also kind of hone my skills, talking to other people, presenting, that sort of thing. And I also really enjoyed, you know, the whole process of trial and error and what's going to work, what's not going to work, what sort of you can expect coming to work every day. Oh, this didn't work. So I have to do this now. And oh, I also have to do this. Like just multitasking that sort of thing, as well as creating just opportunities and networking, that sort of thing. Excellent. You know, I I was interested in um, talking to you all for the project, but also because, um, you probably know we're very new in the the polytechnic arena as an institution and in the exploratory phase when we were um, examining what we were going to, um, what kind of institution we were going to create, we did collaborate with your institution. Um, I think we're similar in many ways. Um, we at Utah Tech, not only are we a polytechnic, but we're an open admissions institution. Um, and that really poses some challenges for us, but also creates a good deal of potential. Um, you are Wisconsin's Polytechnic University, and um, I'm guessing from from what I've heard that you aren't like a typical polytechnic in the sense that you have very, very rigorous academics, academic uh, entry requirements. Is that correct? That is correct. So what kinds of challenges... And opportunities do you see working with the kinds of students that you get in a polytechnic environment? I know that's a kind of a broad question, but you know, what's your what have some of your experiences been? Well, I'll start 
on this one. I, I'm going to talk about the opportunities uh, before I start about the challenges. Um, some of the opportunities is that we get first generation college students and we also get students who are at a lower economic status in terms of what they come in with. Uh, I personally have always believed in terms of my class structure, my teaching process that um, I'm bringing everyone up. I'm not just bringing like people who have had these opportunities in high school or elementary school because they went to this amazing school. I, and I think our university is wonderful in terms of that. Like we teach all the school skills for the most part that they'll need to be an entry level uh, industrial designer, at least in our area. Um, and I think that's a huge thing because it's the playing field will never be fair, most likely. Right. But we can do our part to bring everyone up. And I think that's a huge thing. So to me, that's that's the biggest opportunity in exposing students what's possible. Um, Mitch, would you like to? Yes, yes. I, I think one what you what you will likely see is is Utah Tech, uh, you know, grows and uh, and continues to sort of like deploy uh, its new its new model, a polytechnic model. But what what I what I see at Stout is the range of sort of engagement with like these with, with projects like this. Uh, that require a certain level of, of imagination, uh, a certain level of like sort of comfort uh, delving into the to the unexplored or the unknown or uncomfortable. There's there's a lot of range I find in in this in the performance of students and in, in when we give them these polytechnic projects, something like the spaghetti spinner that's part of class. Um, so you see some really high performance in some. Uh, and maybe some kind of lower performance in what they create uh, in the deliverable. But I think to to reinforce what, what Jennifer is saying, some of that high performance comes from the students that, that haven't succeeded academically in the past in more traditional institutions. I think there are many who thrive where the problem solving is really, really immediate and hands-on. Uh, where it's less about maybe your ability to to, to digest, uh, you know, a 15-page complex theoretical article, and more about really taking a look at a practical situation, understanding the context, uh, and then doing what Olivia was talking about that that iterative design process, that learning through mistakes, uh, and and I think so many students find that polytechnic model really invigorating, really refreshing. Um, and for, for you know, a whole population of students who just sat in a chair and listened for so many hours of their life, it's pretty empowering to watch them like walk and pace and, and, and move and, and, and work in a pod and collaborate and build and iterate and prototype it's it's the best kind of work to do, um, uh, and it it makes working at a place like uh, UW Stout, and a, I hope at a place like Utah Tech, a very very gratifying career. You're certainly echoing both of you are echoing a, a lot of the the things that I you know hold important in terms of what I hope to deliver to my students and the opportunities that I hope that we give them. And it sounds like we do have very similar um, student bodies, and um, the potential is definitely 
definitely there for us to 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 follow the model that that you all are setting. It's really pretty um, pretty impressive, and and um, I really thank you all for joining us, uh, spending a little time talking to us about your project. Um, good luck with your future collaborations, and um, we will see you later. This is our final installment from the 2023 Global Polytechnic Summit. Thank you for joining us. Uh, thank you for having us. Really interesting words from a lot of people who are doing a lot of really unique things and really thought-provoking things in the fields of humanities and technology. That was really exciting. It was great to hear this. Great, great um, experience at the 2023 Global Polytechnic Summit at Utah Tech University. Thanks for listening to the podcast, and we'll catch you next time. This has been the Being Human UT podcast with Dr. Randy Jasmine and Dr. Jim Hindigas. Please follow and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. From Utah Tech University, this is the Being Human UT podcast.